Thank you for tuning in with us at Bayou City Fellowship Tomball, a community that's radically focused on Jesus. Join us as we continue our study through the book of Acts, Luke's account of how the Holy Spirit breathed life into and empowered the early church to fulfill the Great Commission after Jesus' passion. We're going to be in Acts chapter 15 this morning. And welcome, welcome. My name is Kevin Bear. I'm the lead pastor here at our Tomball campus. And I hope you've had a good season, a good start to the new year. Uh, my new year has been uh, filled with COVID. Uh, so I don't know about your new year, but my family is, uh, it's worked our way through our whole family. So they're at home. So, and I know many of your loved ones are walking through that as well. So just uh, keep my family in your prayers, would you please? And I'll keep your family, um, lifting you and your family up as well. And uh, welcome to 2022, people. Amen. But regardless of that, Jesus is still on his throne. Amen. He is still ruling and reigning. He's worth worshiping, and I'm excited about our topic this morning. Um, and if there was one title I would give you to write at the top of Acts chapter 15, it would be this, conflict. Conflict. Like, oh, Kevin, why are you excited about conflict? Uh, are you wanting to fight? No, I don't like picking fights. Uh, when I was younger, I did a lot. And then as I got older, I realized that is not a fun way to live, but the reality is we will face conflicts. And so let's look at two conflicts within the church. I'm going to read them uh, for us, a, a section at the first part of Acts chapter 15 and a section at the end of Acts chapter 15. Two very different conflicts right here in Acts chapter 15. Let's read them. Acts chapter 15, starting verse 1, says this, but, when, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers... Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, after Paul and Barnabas had, an, had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way up by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers." When they had come to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together and considered the matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by, the mouth, the, uh, by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no, no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor uh, we have been able to bear? We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. Now jump over to uh, verse 30. So they were sent off. They went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter and when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. 
And after they'd spent some time there, they sent off in peace by the brothers to those who um, had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained at Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord, and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them in the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been committed by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you don't tell us just what we want to hear, but you, you show us life as it really exists. And Lord, as we look this morning at a, at a moment of conflict, or two moments of conflict, I pray that you would give us clarity in when to fight and how to fight, of when to disagree and, and how to disagree. And Lord, I know that there are many of us coming into this room, we are carrying the conflicts of our own lives with us, and maybe with a coworker or with a spouse or with a neighbor or with a friend or a family member. And, and Lord, those conflicts are very painful for us. And so Lord, by your grace, I pray that you would show us how to walk through conflicts in a healthy way, and by your grace, to live at peace with all men. Lord, we ask for your wisdom and your guidance, your spirit, to show us how to do it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, conflict, believe it or not, is not necessarily a bad thing. And all you have to do is go to your movies, and you'll see that conflict, in many cases, is actually a good thing. So I'll give you a couple movies just to kind of get you going. Um, th- uh, this will tr- uh, bring you all the way back um, to deep history of the 80s, all the way to modern times in the 2000s, the 2020s. So let's go all the way back to Karate Kid 2, all right? Karate Kid 2, Ralph Macchio, uh, and, and this, this little group of people. There was a conflict in Karate Kid 2. Why didn't you do Karate Kid 1, Kevin? Because we're going to 2, all right? Um, and in Karate Kid 2, there was a conflict. You had this young man and, and, and his teacher go to his land of, of where he grew up, and, and there's a conflict that's being seen between his master, Miyagi, and his old friend, and you see this conflict that is going, this long generations of conflict over a woman. And see, that conflict um, existed within them and continued along the way. And that conflict was so bad, it went even to their, um, the people that were beneath them. And so you see this moment where this conflict over a woman um, divided these two men. And at one point, these men, the two masters, began to reconcile. Like, hey, this isn't worth the fight. This isn't worth the fight. But that conflict was so deep, it went all the way to their sons until this moment where you see the karate kid have to do his like crane kick and kick a guy and to knock him down. You see, man, that conflict over a woman divided all these people. Ooh, but it made for a good storyline and a good movie and a good song later on. I'll be the man who fought for your honor. Whatever. Let's move, move forward a little bit. Uh, there was Liam Neeson that came into conflict because his daughter was taken, right? And so he needed to go. He had these unique skills that he was going to make use of and go 
save his daughter from the clutches of an enemy. Another fight over a woman. There's a theme here. And, and so he saves her life, right? So you see conflict that's interpersonal, and then you see conflict that's about saving a life. Okay, that's interesting. And then you come all the way to the Avengers, right? So just move us through movie history. You come all the way to the Avengers, and I'm going to bring you all the way up to a movie called Captain America Civil War, all right? You may not have seen it. That's fine. That's why I give you lots of movie references. In Captain America's Civil War, there became this divide between these two great powers. And here's what's fascinating about the Avengers. You have all of these people with tremendous power, tremendous ability from beyond this world, all of this power. And at one, some moments within the movie, they're united. And as they're united, great things happen. They defeat all of these dark enemies. None of these enemies you could defeat on your own, but together they're over to, able to overcome but then something happens in Captain America Civil War. Some, suddenly these two men, Captain America and Tony Stark, Iron Man, have a conflict interpersonally in which they cannot reconcile. And it divides these people out and makes them go in separate directions. And this whole movie plays out showing these people dividing over a crucial issue that sends them separately. And what you see in this movie series is, is, is something that's really fascinating. It's true in the Christian life. Is that there's some conflicts that are worth having. There are some conflicts against a dark enemy, against something that's hurting us, that it is worth fighting for. And when we see them gather together, fighting against that great enemy together, saving people's lives, we say, yes, that is worth the fight. That is worth the conflict. When it's an issue of salvation, we want our people to fight that war. But then you see other conflicts ensue. And it's not about salvation. It's about a personal issue. It's interpersonal relations. And we, when we see people fighting over interpersonal relations, it it hurts our heart. You see, one conflict is about breaking barriers, moving two people to save them, but there's other conflicts that just break your heart. And what I want to show us this morning in this passage is that we see both of those in the early church. There's conflicts over salvation, what it looks like to free people, and we see conflicts over relationships that divide people. There's one conflict that is worth having, but there's other conflicts that require reconciliation in the end. So how is it that we walk through our conflicts well? I want to give you, first of all, kind of the setting of what's going on in this section. Paul and Barnabas have been sent out as missionaries, and we see that in Acts chapter 14, verses 24 through 28. It kind of gives you a summary of their missions. It says, Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch in Syria, and they passed through um, Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken a word to Perga, they went down to um, Italia, and there they went and sailed to Antioch, where they were commended to the grace of God and the work that had been fulfilled in this area. And so what you see, first of all, is that Paul and Barnabas are the dream team. I mean, they are the prime missionaries, some, to, do, to the successful missionaries in their day, bringing the gospel to all of this region. I have a map kind of clarifying what this first missionary journey looked like for them. You see the map up there? There's a map somewhere. It's coming. It's coming. Hold, hold. There we are. Um, and you see that they started in this small region. Um, in, in particular, they went to... Uh, 
an area that was in uh, Galatia and, and Cappadocia. And so they are Cyprus and Galatia. That was their main area in which they were. And they traveled all through all of these cities, through Salmis, through, through Paphos, through Perga, um, over to Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, um, Lystra Derby, and then back through, all the way back to Antioch there over in Syria. And so they were on this missionary journey, preaching the gospel, going to all these cities, seeing people converted. And they were an amazing team that moved forward the mission of God. But what ended up happening as they started preaching the gospel is that Gentiles started coming to faith. And the issue is, okay, these people that didn't grow up Jewish, what are their responsibilities in relationship to the Mosaic law? And so the conflicts started to rise. But before we get into all the details of those conflicts, I want to give you three realities of conflicts. The first reality of conflicts is this, that conflicts are unavoidable. They're unavoidable. Um, when, uh, my wife and I, Hillary, uh, we started dating when she was 14 and I was 16. We dated almost nine years before we got married. It was a long time. And, and I'll tell you this, uh, when we first started dating, we didn't really have any conflicts. As 14 and 16-year-olds, I mean, for many, many years, we really didn't fight about anything. And then we got married. <sighs> And, and more conflicts come, right? And, and, and the reality is, is if you never have conflicts in your interpersonal relationships, it usually means that one person's viewpoints are getting squashed. That's usually what's happening. In every relationship, there are going to be differing opinions. So if you walk closely with people, conflicts will eventually arise. They're unavoidable. Um, secondly, conflict involves people, and people matter. That's the second part about conflicts. Conflicts are unavoidable. Secondly, conflicts involve people, and people matter. We have a propensity to divide and demonize when we come into conflict with people. And that's not healthy. That's not good. We have a tendency to divide and demonize people that disagree with us. But that's, that's not wise, and that's not healthy. But conflicts um, involve people, and people matter. Number three, some conflicts are worth having and some conflicts are not. Wisdom is needed to know the difference. Some conflicts are worth having, and some conflicts are not. So you need wisdom to know the difference. See, some of us are conflict avoiders. So whenever there's a tension anywhere, you move in to soothe everyone out. And, and, and you kind of like placate everyone. Okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And, and, and it's really a fragile form of unity because you haven't actually walked through the conflict. You're just trying to, to smother it. Others of you are conflict attackers. You're just ready for the next fight. Like, like what, what's the issue? What football team do you like? I hate them. Do you really hate them? No, I just hate them on principle, right? Okay, great. Like everything's a fight with you. Well, you need to calm down. You don't need to run into every situation with an opinion. Your opinion doesn't matter in every situation. Neither does mine, okay? But some fights are worth having, other fights are not. And it's wisdom, it's wisdom to know the difference. The first conflict that we're going to look at is one that is crucial. It's one that's worth fighting over. It's one that is, is, is foundational to the basis of the Christian faith. It's a core doctrine. And we see that this battle ensues over this major issue, uh, major issue, this conflict over the issue of salvation. And this fight is worth having. Here's what it says in uh, verse 1. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now this is the crux of the first issue. 
unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. The, the issue is one of salvation. What, what does it take to be saved? And that's the issue that's being debated. And then verse two says, now after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension in the, in the debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So this issue was so big, they're going to need to go to the apostles and elders to settle this debate. And so Paul and Barnabas are going to travel from, from Antioch over to Jerusalem to the church leaders to figure out, hey, what is the solution on this? What do we believe about this essential doctrine? What's necessary for salvation. How do I know if someone is really saved? Well, what does the word saved mean? What do they mean by that? Let me give you a definition from, from one Greek definition. It says this, to rescue from danger or to restore the fo- to a former state of well-being, to deliver, to rescue, or make safe. So at one level, salvation is referring, generally speaking, to make people safe from danger, but there's a very sp- specific meaning that's used in the New Testament. And I'm gonna give you a couple of versions from Acts. In Acts 2.21, it says this, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Acts 2.47, praising God and having favor with all people, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who are being saved. Okay, so what does he mean by saved? Saved from What? Acts 16.31, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your entire household. So salvation has to do with our relationship with Jesus. In the New Testament, in this context, he's using the word saved to mean this, that you are positionally made right with God and you are eternally promised eternal life with God. It means you're saved from the consequences of your sin and you eventually will be saved from the presence of sin. Salvation in the New Testament, in this context, is saying, how do I know that I'm right with God? And it says this, belief in Jesus Christ, in his death, in your place, for your sins. And that's the crux of the issue. Paul and Barnabas are saying, what's needed is faith alone in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins to be saved. What the Jewish Judaizers are saying in this moment is no, you need other things. You need to also bring onto yourself the law of Moses. And they say specifically, you need to be circumcised. Um, Circumcision is only for men, uh, but it was a symbol that you are part of, of, of faith, the faith of Abraham. But it was more than just that particular event. It actually had to do with all of the law of Abraham. Look at verse five, or the law of Moses. Look at verse five. He goes to Jerusalem, and in verse 5 it says, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So it's more than just that event. It's like you need to keep all of the law of Moses, all 600 plus laws Christians need to follow. And that's the issue. Is it faith alone or do you need works? What is it, what proves that you are legitimately saved? And that's the crux of the issue. And that's what brings these people in this debate to Jerusalem to battle this out. 
And verse 6 says this, Now the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter. This is really important. When it comes to a major theological issue, you have to get the right people in the room. And so they get the apostles and the elders to come together to debate this issue. What, what do we need to, to do in this moment? What do we do with the Old Testament law? And after there was much debate, Peter stood up and said, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by, the mouth, by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And so here's what Peter references. He says, there was a moment when I went to Cornelius' house and I preached the gospel. Previously, when the Holy Spirit fell upon the early church, they began speaking in different types of tongues, different languages, hearing the gospel in their own language. And that was authenticating that God was moving and in a new way to this people. And when he spoke the gospel to Cornelius, the same thing happened. His whole house began speaking in new languages. And all of a sudden, like, okay, God is sending the Spirit to both people. And it was before they did anything right. It was before they lived a moral life. It was faith alone in Christ alone that immediately sent the Spirit. And God knows their heart, is what Peter's saying. And because their heart was soft to the gospel, because they believed in Jesus Christ, the Spirit came to them. And see, this is the debate. In verse 10 it says, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. He says, why are you putting the yoke of the Old Testament Mosaic law on these disciples that none of us could carry out? Like, why are you putting the Old Testament law on people's shoulders? No one was able to follow the Old Testament law. You couldn't follow the Old Testament law. We couldn't follow the Old Testament law. None of us were made right in the sight of God by obedience to the Old Testament law. So why, if faith alone in Christ alone is what saves us, are you saying, no, you must complete and do the Old Testament law? And see, that's the crux of the issue. What do New Testament believers do with the Old Testament law? Well, what Peter is arguing, what he is saying is, the Old Testament law has been fulfilled in Christ. It's been finished. He lived a perfect life you could not live. He died the death you and I deserve to die. And he paid it all. And on the cross of Christ, he says, it is finished. What's finished? All of the obedience to the Old Testament law, Jesus completed. He did it. He was faithful to complete everything on the list. So you don't have to, and I don't have to. Salvation is not based on doing the right works. Salvation is based in faith alone, in Christ alone. Let me give you some verses. Kevin, is that true? Let me give you some verses. If you have a pen or a phone, write these down, take a picture. Romans 3.20 says this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. It couldn't be any more clear. Through the works of the law, no human being will be justified. Justified means to be declared right in God's sight. No amount of good works will make you good in the sight of God. 
Nothing you do will make God love you more. Galatians 2.16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. No one will be declared right in God's sight by obeying the Old Testament law. That's not what does it. Romans eleven six, For it is by grace. It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. It's by grace you and I are saved. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. See, this issue is so big. How is someone saved? It is what's divided the church in the days of Luther and the Protestant Reformation. This was the crux issue. How do I know that I'm in right relationship with God? In the Reformation, Luther argued, it is solo scriptura. It is the scripture alone and solo fide. It is faith alone. It is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work that saves us. It is nothing else. And, and Luther he stood before the Council of Worms and he says this, unless, Worms is a city, it's not like Worms, okay, it's a city. He says, unless I'm convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept these other authorities that have contradicted one another. He says, I, can, I cannot recant what I have written. It's neither right nor safe. God help me, amen. Verse 11 really summarizes this whole issue. And I think the biggest issue of all chapter 15 is verse 11. And if you have a highlighter or a pen, I would underline chapter 15, verse 11. It says this. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. That's the crux of the issue. How do I know that I am right before God? Have you put your faith alone in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins? There's nothing else that will save you. No amount of good works, no amount of good actions, no trying to live a good enough life, no, no begging God, please, 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 I, I, I totally blew it this time. God's like, I already know that. It's called the great exchange. When, G, when you put your faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, all of your sin goes to Jesus on the cross. And all of his righteousness goes to you. So when you stand before God one day and ask the question, God, uh, why, have you, why should I even be here in heaven? Should I even be here in heaven? And you won't say, hey, because I lived a good life. I prayed a prayer when I was five. I did the right things. None of that saves you. I went on a mission trip. I was in a Bible study. I was at Bible study Tomball. I mean, that was an amazing church. Like, none of that will save you. The only thing that saves anyone and everyone is believing that Jesus paid it all. And his righteousness is accredited to your account. And so you don't stand before God and say, I believe I'm in here because I was a pretty good person. I did the right thing. I was generally a nice guy. None of that saves you. No one is good enough. His blood 
pays it all. And this, this is worth fighting for. This is worth a battle. This, in the, in, even in New Testament times and even in times today, is still an issue. How do I know I'm good enough for God? Have you put your faith in the Son? He has qualified you. That's enough. That is worth fighting for. Now what's interesting in this section, what's fascinating is Paul fights for this. Paul and Barnabas argue for this. And the council sides with them. They say, yes, that's true. We believe in this. And they send out a letter to all the churches saying, look, you you do not have to be circumcised. And they give them some wisdom and what to do. They say, okay, believe in Jesus, but you don't have to follow the Old Testament law. But then they give them some wisdom on some things to do. And what's what's interesting in, in this, and this is really crucial, is that faith in Christ alone saves you. It's nothing that you do. It's no work that saves you. It's that alone. But there is wisdom in how you behave with other people. And so as they go back into these other cultures, they say, I want to give you some wisdom in how to interact with both Jewish people and Gentile people. With Jewish people, sometimes it means that you're going to restrain what you're eating. You're not going to adopt the dietary habits that are going to confuse these people with the gospel. And what's so fascinating is that that Paul fights vehemently by grace through faith you're saved. And in Acts chapter 16, he pulls on Timothy, a young convert. And he says, Timothy, we're going to have you circumcised as we go minister to people. And you're like, what? Like, Paul, you just like picked a big fight over this issue. Why are you going to circumcise Timothy? Because here's the issue. We know it is by grace through faith alone that saves you. But there's different barriers that people have to believe. And so my freedom in Christ is not used as a weapon. Like, I don't use my freedom in Christ as a weapon to demonize other people. And so there's times in, in our lives as Christians that although we're free in Christ to believe in, by grace through faith, nothing saves us, there's sometimes that we change our behavior so that we won't be offensive with the gospel. I'll give you a simple example. Um, years ago when we were on uh, particular missionary trips to certain areas, um, we... We needed to wear certain clothing so to not be offensive in bringing the gospel. Like, was I free to wear shorts? Sure. Was I going to hurt the spread of the gospel in this context? Yes. So I wore pants. God forbid, right? Like, well, it's a gospel issue. No, just wear pants. Like, it's going to be okay, right? And there's sometimes we limit our freedoms for the sake of others. Alcohol is one of those other issues, there's some people that say, man, I never drink, and that's, that's a problem. And, 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 and for, for certain people, that is a real problem. It is a, a crisis of conscience. And so in those contexts, it is wise to, to limit your freedom in alcohol for the sake of others and the sake of the gospel. It's completely fine. And we all have those different things. Well, what music style do we need? I don't know. In 50 years, it'll probably be something different. Maybe guitars will go out. Maybe we'll have more guitars. I don't know, Right? But that's not a gospel issue. That's a secondary issue. And so the wisdom of Christians is to say, I'm going to limit my freedoms for the sake of the gospel. But I know, I know, whether we have an organ or someone rapping or guitars, like, does that necessitate a fight? No. We're going to do what we choose to do as God leads us by conscience and and we're going to trust our lives to him. It's not a salvation issue, 
right? I like our music the way it is. Okay, all right. <laughs> so that's an issue of salvation. That issue is worth fighting for. But then we get this second issue. It's not an issue of theology and doctrine. It's an issue of personal relationships. And I'll tell you this. Most of your big fights in life are probably not going to be theological ones. They're probably going to be interpersonal ones. And what's so fascinating in this moment is that you see Paul and Barnabas fighting. And you know those guys are high-fiving and excited as they're like sharing this with the rest of the church. They're like, you don't know what happened. James stood up. Peter stood up. All the big heavies, they all defended us. Let me tell you about the gospel. This is amazing. And so they start going through and telling all these people what God had done. And then at one moment as they begin talking, they're like, okay, Paul says, okay, let's go back and, and visit the other churches and, 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 and keep on talking about the gospel Verse 35, it says, But Paul and Barnabas remained at Antioch and teaching and preaching the word of the Lord. But verse 36, Now after some time, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's go and return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of God to see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and got with him to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed. What you see here is a personal conflict that divides people. It's not an issue of theology. It's an issue of when to return someone to full-time ministry. See, Timothy, or sorry, um, John Mark was actually Barnabas' cousin. And they had picked him up in Acts chapter 13 and brought him along on this missionary journey. But at some moment, um, things started heating up. It started becoming difficult. And you'll see that whenever Paul goes to a city and begins preaching, there's two responses. There's people that are excited about what he's saying, and there's people that want to stone him and kill him. And odds are the temperatures started getting turned up, and John Mark said, I'm out Chris, um, he went, and, and some say he even went to be with his mama. He was a young man who was scared, and he abandoned them at a crucial moment. And so the question that Barnabas and Saul are debating is, okay, well, when's it right to reinstate someone? When is it right to take someone that's blown it and to trust them again? And that's the debate. That's the interpersonal conflict in this moment, and, and there's some, some words here that are really interesting. Um, it says that there was a sharp disagreement. It's the Greek word paroxysm. In our English word, um, that, that means a sudden and violent eruption and a clash. So, so it wasn't just one conversation. It's that Paul is saying, hey, we cannot take John Mark with us, and Barnabas is saying, well, why not? And Paul's saying, no, no, he abandoned us previously. That we can't take him again. And Barnes was like, come on, let's try. Charles Swindoll, um, he creates kind of a, a fictional narrative of what it would look like for these two men in this conversation. It could go something like this. It says this, Barnabas said, said to Paul, he writes this, Barnabas and John Mark took the sea and traveled to Cyprus. And as they debate, Barnabas says, Paul, why can't we take John Mark? Why can't we take him with us? 
Paul says, because he failed us last time. Barnabas, but that was last time. Paul, he'll do it again. He's a deserter. Barnabas, he had time to think it over. We've got to give him another chance. We've got to consider him. Paul, tell me, Barnabas, isn't that just because he's your cousin? Barnabas, that's not fair. You know I've tried to help many people who aren't related to me. I'm convinced this lad needs understanding and encouragement. He could be a great evangelist someday, Paul. We need someone who can stand up to persecution, an angry mob, beatings, perhaps jail. Our team has to be close-knit and reliable. We can't trust him. There's no way that we can trust this man. Barnabas, I've talked to him about his failure. I'm sure he won't do it again. To refuse him might do serious spiritual damage. Paul, it's too soon to trust him. Barnabas, Paul, remember how soon after your conversion I took a chance on you. The apostles were afraid of you, thinking you were uh, faking your conversion in order to infiltrate the church. I didn't make you prove yourself first. Who knows how this dialogue went, but it was sharp and it was divisive. A.T. Robertson, Robertson writes, no one can rightly blame Barnabas for giving his cousin John Mark a second chance, nor Paul for fearing to risk him again. One's judgment may go with Paul, but one's heart goes with Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas parted ways, both in anger and both in sorrow. See, that's the reality of personal conflicts. It's fights that divide us interpersonally. And if I just, as I even read that dialogue, some of you are even playing that in your own life. Gosh, man, that was my conversation with my, my spouse. That was my conversation with my, my in-laws. I want to do this, I can't do this, I want to do this, I can't do this, and not, 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 not. And those conflicts become so divisive, they can become explosive. And what's really sad about these two men is that we never watched them working in ministry together again. At no point do Paul and Barnabas join ministry forces again. John Mark destroyed the dream team. Thank you, John Mark, for ruining history. But that's true in many of our lives. And many of us can think about people that we have disagreed with, that have hurt us personally. And sadly, we don't talk to them anymore. And let me challenge us Christians, that ought not be so. That ought not be so. I'm going to give you three concluding statements as we close our time together. The first is this. Grace through faith is worth the fight. Grace through faith is worth the fight. There are some key theological doctrines that are worth defending. That one is. Secondly, personal agreements are worth resolving. Personal division on secondary issues are worth resolving. Although in this particular text, we don't get the resolution of this relationship, we just see it divide. Fortunately, we have more New Testament 
Although Paul and Barnabas never worked together, we do get these words from Paul in Romans 12. It says this, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If possible, as far as it depends on you. I mean, can you imagine just Paul? I don't know who he's thinking about, but maybe he's reflecting back to his own personal divisions. He says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. That means pursue peace. Seek peace and pursue it. So who is that person that you have a personal disagreement with? Who are those people that you are fighting with? Let me just tell you, it is, as far as it depends on you, it is worth pursuing peace with them. Number three, space, time, and forgiveness can mend broken relationships. Space, time, and forgiveness can mend broken relationships. What's interesting is that Paul, although he never works with Barnabas, he speaks of him favorably later on. In 1 Corinthians 6, he, he speaks very kindly of Barnabas. And he, so a time, Mark made up with Barnabas, and, and actually John Mark eventually made up with Paul. See, that's the full story. Eventually, John Mark and Paul are going to work together again. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, says this. This is Paul's last letter before he's about to die. He says, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Isn't that beautiful? This division, this argument that brought division, at the end of Paul's life, he says, Timothy, go get John Mark and bring him here. He's useful for ministry. I may be speaking beyond what's true, but it seems that Paul, although he may have been right in some ways, he may not have been right in every way at this moment in this division. Regardless of that, the two men reconcile and work together again. John Mark and Paul. That is beautiful. That reconciliation in division is possible. A helpful statement for me is this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. In essentials, unity. There are a few things that as Christians we cannot budge on. The deity of Jesus, faith alone in Christ alone. We cannot budge on these things. But in non-essentials, liberty. There's freedom in some non-essential issues, but in all things, charity. I may disagree, but I don't need to be disagreeable. I can walk in love and grace, even if I disagree with someone, because that's the real issue of this whole text. I told you one title at the beginning, right? Conflict at the top. Let me give you a second title to write in there. Grace. Chapter 15, 11. 
said it is by grace that we're saved. And at the end of this passage, verse 40, Paul chose with him Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Grace is unmerited favor. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it, but we extend it. So who are you in conflict with? Is it a big issue? Is it a foundational issue of life? Let me just tell you, you can still extend grace even in your disagreement. Are you in conflict interpersonally with someone? It's gone on for a long time and you thought, I will never forgive them. Maybe, maybe grace is what's needed to come from you. So why don't you take a moment and bow your head as we pray. Jesus, thank you that you broke down the great dividing wall. That by your wounds we are healed. And Lord, you took on conflict to bring peace. You took on division to bring healing and hope. And thank you, Jesus, that by, the, by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, we can be saved. Thank you for that amazing, amazing truth. And Lord, I pray that that would be the foundation of our lives, the foundation of our faith not the works of the law, but faith in the one who paid it all. And Lord, I know that there's also many of us in this room that have interpersonal conflicts. People we don't talk to anymore. Maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's, um, maybe it's even our spouse. Jesus, I pray that you would give us your grace to extend love, to extend compassion, and more than anything, to see reconciliation. I thank you for Paul and Barnabas, and, and Lord, I don't know who was right in the situation. But we th I thank you, Lord, that we see that Paul um, and John Mark were reconciled in the end. And Lord, my prayer for us is that we would be people that would reconcile in the end. By your grace and by your wounds, we would be healed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope that you feel encouraged. To stay up to date with our current sermon series, you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you would like to find more ways to get involved with the Bayou City family, Visit us online at BayouCityFellowship.com or download the Bayou City Fellowship Tomball app to find community in the body of Christ.